Welcome to a new episode of Down the Rabbit Hole, number 34 this time. Oh. Carl? Yeah. 34. 34. Blimey. That's, yeah. that's more than my IQ. So, some, uh, soon we're going to reach our age. <laughs> <laughs> Yours, maybe. Yeah, well, yeah. closer <laughs> to mine. mine. Yeah. <laughs> I'm just going to touch on the weather. Okay. Yeah. Uh, it's a because it has changed a lot, right? Big, I can't believe the weather is... Did you? I don't know whether you were out and about on. I think it was Sunday. Mm-hmm. It was incredibly warm on warm. Sunday. Oh, changed oh, like boom. I was walking through the park, and considering it's November, and occasionally there was a kind of a slight breeze, and the it was actually warm. Mm-hmm. The the breeze. Yeah. This is crazy, right? Yeah. November. It- and yet today, of course, it's a very crisp kind of autumn winter day, mm-hmm. blue skies, and it's pretty chilly, right? Previous week, we thought actually that it was going to start to snow. I know. Of how cold it was, humidity. Yeah. It was perfect conditions for snow. And then we had days of, you know, kind of misty, rainy. Mm-hmm. So the weather is completely, I don't know whether this has got anything to do with Trump being president. Maybe he paid the weather. Well, I'm sure, or, well, or at least uh, it may have got harp things. It may have got that nice Mr. Putin to do something, <laughs> as they seem to be mates. You know. Anyway, we've now dated this uh, web, uh, this podcast. So, uh-huh. should we start? Yes, because our subject uh, for this week is the second part of the Nazi super weapons, mm. weapons that actually were built. Yeah, not just bits of paper. And uh, yeah, last week we covered those. Oh. The ones that were supposed to be, but we don't really know for sure. Yeah, there was there's a lot of myth and myth, uh-huh. myth mythology about these things, isn't there? But there is some hard evidence, and there is some hardware. There was uh-huh. hardware, shall we say? Yes. Um, so and now today we do the real ones. Yeah, we're the gonna, ones that were built. Yeah, they may not have been successful, deployed fully. Supply, yeah, deployed. Yeah. But they were built. Mm-hmm. So what? How shall we? Where well, shall we start? We start with what we have first. There, <laughs> the top of <laughs> the, the interceptors. List. Yes, yes, uh, jet interceptors. Yeah, yeah. The uh, Fokker Wolf, uh, very well known. Mm-hmm. I actually don't know whether Fokker Wolf still exist. I don't know, but I like the design. Was oh, very nice. I like the name, but yeah. <laughs> but I agree with you. The design looks very uh, almost cartoony kind of video gamey like uh, Japanese anime stuff yeah, like it would transform into a robot so yeah, the other it, it does look a bit transformerish doesn't it yeah um, obviously sexed up there with the old um, the old um, German Nazi iconography on there but uh-huh. but yeah so Fokker Wolf was uh, um, producing this or trying to get out they only got a prototype of this uh, aircraft called the Super Lorin, um, of which we were just referring to a picture of it, which uh-huh. looks, looks very sexy, doesn't it? It's a proper yeah. military hardware there. And very modern-looking, actually. Mm-hmm. Very mm-hmm. modern-looking. Um, and they also had another one, the uh, TA-283, um, which they managed to build prototypes of, uh-huh. or, or they were in the process of building prototypes when... Very inconveniently, 
Very inconvenient. Yeah, yeah. the British. The British, those plucky islanders. And I'm not, <laughs> not just saying that because I am one. Uh, they actually captured the Fockerwall factory in 1945. Mm-hmm. And um, that was the end of that. But um, Fockerwolf also were producing this HS-132. Uh, and in fact, this is the... This is the one we we're seeing the picture of with the uh-huh. engines mounted on top of the fuselage at the back. Um, it was intended to be a lethal combination of dive bomber and interceptor. Which, Between the bomber and interceptor, yes. Which would have been a, possibly a game changer had they got it out there, but they just ran out of time, folks. Uh-huh. So, yeah, very interesting looking aircraft. And I'd... I do wonder, I don't know whether any of those, whether there were any airframes or whatever, because they were building prototypes. But obviously a lot of this technology influenced what happened immediately after the war Mm -hmm. in various ways, which we'll come to. Um, So, yeah, so that is the uh, Fokker Wolf Super Lorin. Then there was the TA-283, which we don't have a picture of. And then very nice rendering of the... uh, HS1, the Henkel uh-huh. HS132, sorry, not Wolf, um, which very impressive. Mm-hmm. A bit of hardware. I, there. I wonder if this aircraft would have actually, you know, seen action in the. Well, apparently the this these didn't these ones. Yeah, those didn't. But if they would have, it would actually be a game changer. Total game changer. I think it I should think. have been. In fact, there's some stuff further along in the program where. You can see the potential for disruption. I mean, these were disruptive technologies. Oh, yeah. Like radar was when Mm -hmm. the British came up with it. And uh, I was reading uh, some time ago as well. Hmm. Most of these weapons are or were created uh, in a little bit in the desperation, in the urgency of trying to change tides. Trying to change the course of the war. Yes. I mean, a lot of them were towards the end of the war. But they? also, mm. many of them were called something like uh, vengeance weapons. Vengeance weapons, yeah. Because, you know, oh, I have to pay back that guy. Yeah. But the Nazis liked words like that. Yeah. Blitzkrieg, you know. Of course. You know, all those Sounds really cool, powerful, you know, powerful. Oh, I mean, that plus the uniforms. Yeah. Uh-huh. It could have been a Hollywood production. In fact, the next weapon we're going to talk about mm. was exactly this case. Mm. It was called also a vengeance weapon, <laughs> and it's the B-3 super gun. Yeah. The, v- the B-3, which, oh. of course, if we think about the predecessors, the V-1 and the V-2, yeah. uh, which were like um, rockets, missiles, rockets, jets. Yes, that were preceding it. This one, the V-3 super gun, was also called the England cannon. The England cannon. Yeah. <laughs> <laughs> so it was supposed to be a super massive gun built directly into a hill. Yeah. Actually multiple guns actually. Yes, and capable of firing artillery shells across the English Channel yeah. from France to London. Yeah. So the B3 uh uh according to this uh, multi-charge principle that you are saying that having several guns. Yeah. Uh in which secondary propellant charges were fired to progressively accelerate the projectile. So it's, yes, so it kind of went bang, 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 bang. bang. Exactly, <laughs> one after another. And they actually did trials. Yeah. In 1944, the B-3 
achieved a range of 55 miles, wow. 88 kilometers. And in July 1944, they got to 58 miles, 93 kilometers. I mean, that is getting close to being able to reach London from France, from, clearly. Yeah. Because right? yes. there's, there's only like 12 to 15 miles between, or whatever that is in uh-huh. kilometers, between France and the southern coast of England. And then maybe another 50 miles to and actually, London. Yeah. when you see the pictures of the hill where they were building the rails, they look impressive. I mean... that. That picture is actually the, um, is the, uh, what's it called? The one that they used to bombard Luxembourg with, that one. Uh-huh, uh-huh. That is the smaller one. Yeah. Whereas the big the big one, the, the actual V3 original plan, was meant to be sunk in bunkers in uh, a location in France called Mimoyec, I think it is, in northern uh-huh. France. Uh-huh. Underground bunkers, huge... And they were meant to work, uh, there were 50 barrels at a time mm-hmm. would be activated. So it would be like a hailstone of lead, right? Imagine that. Coming across the channel. <laughs> Imagine that. And I think they had three super guns in plan. Right. But they built actually two. Right. And from the two, only this one you're uh, mentioning that uh, attacked Luxembourg yeah. saw some action. Yeah, that's right. From January 11th to February 22, 1945. Yeah. 183 rounds yeah. were fired. Yeah, they didn't, do, they didn't do much though, did they? Apparently. That's because Belgium, Belgium people, <laughs> are, there's so much space in between them. It's hard to target. Uh, yeah. <laughs> there's not a lot of people in Belgium. <laughs> you probably hit a lot of chocolate, chocolate Actually, factories. Imagine that after 142 rounds that landed, yeah. it only killed 10 people, yeah. wounding another 35. Exactly. So it's more a terror weapon, isn't it? I think so. It's, I like, think it was caused to create the chaos and fear. Terror, like the V1 yeah. and the V2. Mm-hmm. Like the V1, the, the doodle bug, as it used to be called, the one with the uh, jet, very simple jet engine on uh-huh. the top. Um, which was the original one, um, that made this kind of like banging sound, like a because it was a pulse jet. The jet was a type of jet called a pulse jet, which is very easy to make, by the way. Yeah. Only has one, <laughs> only has one moving part. Mm-hmm. Pulse jet. Yeah. yeah. Anyway, um, the thing about those was they were pretty fast, about four hundred and something miles an hour. Uh-huh. And the Spitfires that had to intercept them, it was only the Spitfire could catch them. And they used to do a manoeuvre of, it was something like, the Spitfire went into a dive to pick up speed uh-huh. and then levelled out next to the, the, the bomb and tipped it. And boom. Using the wing. Yeah. I mean, it's real desperate stuff, right? Yeah. And then the V2, of course, was supersonic. Uh-huh. So you didn't actually see it. So when they launched those V2s, to London, there was just an explosion. You never saw the V2. It was going that fast. Yeah. These are terror weapons, aren't they? Like, yeah. I mean, imagine these, uh, this V3 supergun, if the firing, if they ever got to firing 50 barrels at a time, you wouldn't see that. No. Ordinance. It would just... It, it would just fall down. It and... would just hit it, right? Or whatever. Yeah. It'd be like out of nowhere, out of the blue sky. Suddenly, boom. Destruction. Mm-hmm. So these are kind of terror weapons, I think, aren't they? And yeah, 
And the terror weapons would cause a lot of alarm, yeah. chaos, Anxiety. disorganization, yeah. uh, riots inside the cities. Yeah, very similar to Which... the American presidential elections are now. <laughs> yeah, pretty <laughs> similar, right? <laughs> Is Donald Trump a terror weapon? Maybe his hair is a super weapon. <laughs> Again, I think it's, it's it a terror fail. weapon. It's, it's a terror weapon. It's a terror something. <laughs> a terror syrup. That's what yeah. it is. Uh, yeah, so, um, yeah, V3 super gun. And um, the next one. Good attempt, aircraft. I think. Yeah. yeah. Yeah, next one. Shall I yeah, walk through this one? This is quite interesting. We've got a picture of this uh-huh. aircraft, the Fokker Agelis FA-269 was, I believe, other than a helicopter, which were just coming out around this time Uh in actual use, um, the Fokker FA-269 was a a vertical takeoff and landing single-seat fighter, and it was developed or designed by Heinrich Fokker in 1941. Mm -hmm. And it, uh, it basically had tilting rotors, which is actually used by the Osprey, I think it is, by the U.S. Army today. A new, yes. You look at pictures of that Osprey, it's a huge thing with the huge propellers that go like this and lift it off and then... And then sh- we've seen it in lots of sci-fi movies, right? Uh-huh. Um, anyway, old uh, Heinrich, mm-hmm. clever fellow that he was, came up with this FA-269. And interesting that uh, although... Right now we could see it in many aircrafts, this idea and technology, mm. Mm. and even in sci-fi movies, always taking a vertical Yeah, they're always, uh, they're always doing that, aren't they? Yeah, which is actually a, a huge uh, improvement because that reduces the size of the yeah, ships and, you know... The amount of land you need and yeah. all that stuff. So these could have taken off from aircraft carriers or... Without any problems. From without, a battleship. From right? a battleship, simple, just off. Yeah. Go, fight, yeah. return, and land exactly yeah. in the same spot. So, And it, this was since World War II created. I mean, this is like almost 80 years ago. Mm-hmm. It's quite amazing, really. Mm-hmm. Yeah. That's why I said, or somebody was saying, you know, the phrase uh, that uh, uh, need is the... Oh, uh, necessity is the mother of invention. Necessity is the mother right? of invention. Exactly. I mean, so, the, look at that. But wartime is a tremendous period of innovation, isn't it? Always. Because obviously people are desperate. That's why some people say that certain countries like war. To push things forward. Push right? things forward. Not mm. only science, but economies mm. and true. things like this. It's true, actually. Yeah. So the uh, FA-269, um, uh, Fokker got as far as building a full-size model... Um, and demonstrated the concept, but again, mm-hmm. those plucky allies bombed the project, setting the work back years, and the project was postponed indefinitely in 1944 uh, when the manufacturer very bravely said that a prototype <laughs> couldn't be completed before 1947, or as we call it, after the war. Yeah. So, I, yeah. But this would have been also a game changer if it would have operated. It wouldn't have been very fast, obviously. No, but imagine how easy it would be to go in and out, Mm. refuel, and go again back. Yeah. 
Yeah. Less uh, hassle. Yeah. There's a thing that, just as a side note, you know, now it's very the norm to do like mid-air refueling and all that stuff. Mm-hmm. You never read, there was nothing like that in the Second World War, was there? They, they never did, as far as I or know, thought of refueling on mid-air there. refueling. This is mm-hmm. a more kind of late 50s thing, mm-hmm. I think, which is interesting, really. I don't know why I said that, but there you go. <laughs> So well, what have we got next? What did they come up with next? The next one, uh, I will mention another one here. Oh, yeah, go Which on. were go- called Dora and Gustav Rail Cannons. Oh, those big guns, so right? Speaking of big guns. Wasn't one called Big Birth or something? <laughs> maybe. <laughs> Seriously. Yeah. Maybe owned by E-Corp. Yeah. Something like that. Let's <laughs> well, not talk about that. <laughs> well, if you have seen... Um, um, Mr. Robot, you of know what course, we're talking about. Of course, Mr. Robot fans will know what we're saying. Yeah, of course. So we, this super gun, two 31.5-inch caliber. That is big. That's nearly a meter wide. Yes. Im- Im- imagine the rounds that big. <laughs> and in fact... Uh, it's kind of like as big as a barrel. I think it's right? the largest cannon, actually. Ever built. Is yeah. that ever built. And each had to, in each one of them, it had to be transported in several pieces and assembled. Sounds practical. And then mount, uh, mounted on and prepared for, you know, mm. the procedure. And, and didn't they have to reinforce the track to actually yes, take of course. the... Uh... Uh-huh. And it had, uh, it required around 4,000 men <laughs> to move, operate, install, you know, take apart and put back again. 4,000 men. 4,000, that's a lot. That's a lot for a cannon. It is a lot for a cannon. When you think that if that location was bombed, and you'd lose a lot of people very quickly. Well, that's why the Nazis deploy an entire anti-craft regiment to protect them. Uh, right. Along with other special troops to guard against the, you know, partisan attacks. It's almost like the land equivalent of support groups around an aircraft carrier in a way, isn't it? Yeah, but I don't know if these... Well, of those two, the Gustav was the one that was actually in service. Yeah. And it fired 42 shots during the uh, was siege. Was it in France or? 1942 of uh, Sevastopol. Oh, in uh, Russia. Uh-huh. Sevastopol, right. Yeah. Is that Russia or Ukraine? I can't remember. Something like that. I think it's Ukraine. Yeah. Uh-huh. And the power of the huge shells was 11, each one was 11,000 pounds. That's 4,800 kilos. <laughs> so it wouldn't need to have any explosives in it. It would just, just have to by hit itself, hit down, and that's all. <laughs> Big hole in the ground. Yeah. <laughs> so imagine that just dumping them, uh, it would make, I don't know, like a 100 feet area at least and sink down on the rock, you know, yeah. a huge. But they couldn't have aimed that very accurately, could they? No. Well, they had plans for those weapons to actually equip them with rocket-propelled oh, shells right. that can reach targets as far as 90 miles, 145 kilometers. Oh, wow. Now, in that case, mm. then it could have become probably also very dangerous, oh, yeah. having shells that would go really yeah. that far. Yeah. yeah. Uh, so, so it was only used in the East, Eastern Europe. Yes, and was actually one time used. Uh and actually, uh, some people, uh, there's an expert of, in weapons, Alexander Ludeke, mm-hmm. 
And he refers to this uh, gun as the technological masterpiece, you know. Yeah. <laughs> But, you know, he says also basically we're a waste of materials, technological expertise and manpower. <laughs> <laughs> and yet. <laughs> yeah. But yeah, because imagine wasting 4,000 people on one single cannon plus uh, mm. special troops for protecting it plus yeah. a full anti-aircraft uh, regime. Reg to yeah. And what would be the repetition rate of firing? Probably like two hours between each. He it only shot 42 shots. In total. In total. Sounds like another one of those... Uh, Sounds like another one of those projects where they go, uh, we'd like you to build a gun and you can't say no. <laughs> yeah. <laughs> and they say, it's impossible to do. Yeah. In your head, but then you said, yeah. Okay. Okay, I will make it. For Adolf, I'll have a go. <laughs> <laughs> yeah, I can't, you know, I can't promise anything. Oh, just a quickie. Well, just uh -huh. before we leave this subject, going back to the super gun thing, the V3 thing. Of course... I don't know whether you know this, but strangely, in the last six months, I read a quite a big uh, article about the history of super guns, right? Uh-huh. And it's actually quite a big and complicated subject. There have been many attempts to build uh, super guns. And in fact, in the UK, I think it was in the either the 80s or the 90s, there was a big thing about this guy, a British guy, who was prosecuted for... Um, providing materials to Saddam Hussein, uh, that nice chap who used to run Iraq. <laughs> and um, The guy with the mustache. The, the, with the big, yeah. And he <laughs> was building a supergun. Oh. The Iraqi, the Iraqi supergun. Mm -hmm. And they had a, you know, a suitably name for it, you know, some terror mm. thingy of a bob. Yeah. Um, And that was going to be huge. That, in fact, the full plan for that weapon, um, if it was implemented, would have meant it could launch suborbital ordnance. Wow. Yeah. And the guy, the British guy, got prosecuted. Mm -hmm. And uh, the materials, which were tubes for the gun, uh, were about to be shipped to Iraq and they impounded it and so on and so forth. So this concept of super guns is not going away right it's still yeah. happening it's like everybody wants to build up the typical uh, it's, movie it's a man evil thing. villain you it's know, a man super thing, villain yeah. Yeah, yeah. bigger taller exactly know, i've got the biggest gun right? <laughs> <laughs> i know my hands are small but my gun is very big <laughs> i don't know whether That chimes with anybody out there. Anyway, so yes, shall we move on? Yes, to another aircraft. Shall I do this one? Yeah, um, yeah this is it. I didn't know about this one. Um, the Arado 234, AR-234. Uh -huh. And it is effectively a, well, not effectively, it was a jet-powered bomber, the world's first. Mm -hmm. And it had, I believe, two engines... Um, it was made by the German Arado company, who I've also never heard of before. Uh, it was built in small numbers and was actually deployed. And uh, the Luftwaffe were actually uh, sending them on bombing raids over England in the closing days of the war. And in fact, apparently, according to our information, uh, the AR-234 was the last... Luftwaffe aircraft to actually fly 
over British soil before the end of hostilities in April 1945. And it caused the Royal Air Force, the RAF, a great deal of trouble because they couldn't catch up with it. Mm -hmm. Um, And thankfully, it was only produced in very small numbers. Again, imagine if that had occurred three years earlier. Same thing with these jet interceptors. Mm -hmm. It could have changed everything, right? Yeah, because uh, for the Allies in that moment... We just had propeller-driven aircraft, you know? Yes. I mean, the Germans really innovated a lot. They moved huge steps ahead. But they had certain ways of motivating people that, unfortunately, (laughs) in other countries, they tended not to use. (laughs) So You will not get your burger today. (laughs) That's right. Or your your pork knuckle. Yes. (laughs) So, um, yeah, it's uh, interesting what the pressures of uh, war can produce, isn't it? Mm -hmm. So uh, how about the next one, which is an amazing... Another one, which actually reminds uh, us a lot of the American version, stealth uh, plane. Uh, uh, The Horten 229, Reimer Horten's 229, it's very futuristic way. It's like a V-shaped wing, wing, uh, uh, like these kind of gliders that you could take for flying. Yeah. Exactly like that, but without somebody on there. It has no tail. No tail at all. It's just a wing. Completely aerodynamic. Swept back. Mm -hmm. Very clever design. Mm -hmm. Three by 1,000. This was Hermann Goring's goal. Goal of performance and requirements. And the the specifications was that it could carry 1,000 kilos, one ton of bombs. Yeah. A distance of 1,000 kilometers yeah. with a speed of 1,000 kilometers yeah. per hour. Which was Goring's three times 1,000. three times per 1,000. That is an astounding um, goal. Right? <laughs> yeah. They didn't quite make it. But that 229 wasn't only fast. But with this big load that mm. he was able to carry mm. and the distance that was actually long. Yeah. <laughs> It was, uh, and the fact that this was a stealth uh, feature, mm. it really made it a... Uh, yeah, the stealth feature is amazing. The Horton mixed charcoal dust into uh-huh. the plane's wood glue to absorb electromagnetic radar waves. Yes. Now, I am not personally entirely convinced that that was deliberate, because you know a lot of things get, yeah. oh, look, sometimes happen by accident. Look what they've done, you know, weren't they so clever? I'm not entirely convinced about that. Um, but um, it did have a very small surface area uh-huh. profile mm-hmm. and uh, looked... Um, it's very I read, sci-fi. Well, I read elsewhere that um, for the equivalent size of aircraft, it produced a 20% smaller mm-hmm. radar reflection as tested against the British type of radar that was uh-huh. in, in use at the time. So it's, yeah, it's not that brilliant. And but. it caused also a lot of trouble to the British because well, they would, because of this... Uh, it was never deployed, obviously. No. It was flown, but never got like into a, use. But would have had, let's say, I would it have say better. For sure. Uh, because the fact that it was uh, stealth, avoiding <laughs> radar, and, and it would fast. have given only, according to the stories, it would have given only... Two and a half minutes to respond. (laughs) 
So in two and a half minutes, you have to be... Off the ground. And ready for an attack. You'd have to be in the air, wouldn't you, to, yes, to stand all any the time somebody up and... Yeah. Which, of course, we did in, towards the end of the Second World War. But, uh, <laughs> again, it was just propeller-based aircraft. We didn't have any jet aircraft. And if you live in the U.S., you yeah. can actually see this aircraft display in the San Diego Air oh. and Space Museum. And I've actually seen it. I've been there it's and a, I've uh, seen it. It's a full uh, It's an actual replica. airframe. Flying replica. Well, the, the one in the Air and Space Museum is a, a, an actual airframe. A, a real uh, one, an original yes. one. No, was another company, uh, Northrop. Northrop, uh, yes. He, they, they they made and the link there uh-huh. that uh, we've got in the notes that links to a video of Northrop Grumman, yeah. which is really interesting. Check in the show notes down there, and you will see the link yeah. to the YouTube video. I mean, this Horton two to nine is an astounding thing, really. Isn't mm-hmm. it? And like I said, looks a lot like the American uh, totally stealth. Um, so we got one more, I think, which is pretty amazing. Yeah, we'll talk a little bit before about it. Okay. Remember in last episode? Oh, yes, yes, we did. This is, do you want to start this one? Yeah, it's the Fritz X. Which is a generic term, apparently. Yes, which was the Ruhustal SD-1400, uh, which is a radio-controlled bomb, but of course was called the Fritz X, Yeah, shorter. And it was an air launch uh, German radio control bomb. Yeah. And the primary function was to destroy uh, heavy armor uh, battleships. Yeah. And did actually sink some ships. Some right? of them, yes. Um, and they produced, what, 2,000 of them, something uh, during the course of the end of the war? Mm hmm. They, they, uh, I have here the names of the cruises that were actually. Yeah. yeah. In September 9, 1943, after the Italians signed the truce, mm. the Germans probably, you know, like, uh, uh, you have to pay me back for I that. Didn't, I didn't get that memo. Yeah. So, get this. <laughs> <laughs> Can you keep this for me? Yeah. And they uh, sank the battleship Roma mm. with 1,445 men on board. Mm. And this gun was uh, this bomb, uh, guided bomb, was mm. also used to sink the British cruiser, the HMS Spartan, mm. the destroyer HMS Janus, and the Newfoundland hospital ship. I know. So uh, that much any other, uh, m- many other ships, and yeah, and it was launched apparently but from. You mentioned before that the uh, were built over two thousand, mm. but were only used two hundred. Yeah. 200 bombs were ever dropped. Yeah. And part of the problem was that the bombs cannot change direction abruptly. Oh, it's Therefore, very was ex- gentle. Yeah. So was exposing uh, the bombs. To being shot down. Yeah. So they couldn't jink. <laughs> uh, and I also read that the Allies very quickly realized that, and they created a jamming yeah. device. Because obviously this would be, imagine this technology, right? This thing, radio frequency. For all you people who think the Germans are on the dark side of the moon, right, or at the Arctic, uh-huh. uh, this technology in, used in this guided weapon were thermionic valves, right, or jam jars, glass bottles with a vacuum inside. Uh-huh. This is pretty crude stuff, right? So, but still, once again, the idea of the, such technology 
The innovation is yeah. astounding, right? But obviously the technology was very vulnerable to very quite simple countermeasures. Yes, of course. Um, But imagine that right now you have drones that could just fly radio control and attack. Yeah. And a lot of stuff originated here. Yeah. I mean, uh, it is an amazing weapon. And apparently it had, um, when it was dropped, and it had to be Uh dropped dropped from a minimum of 4,000 meters for some reason, which I can't Uh understand. But uh, apparently the... Uh, the operator who had a kind of a joystick control, mm-hmm. like an Atari joystick, totally innovated, right? <laughs> yeah. Although probably in those days it was about this big, you know, like, <laughs> like a cricket bat or something. Um, they had to have line of sight at it of it at all times. So can you imagine, right? They literally oh. had to follow it to the target. <laughs> that, that strikes me as a slight disadvantage. But And in order for them to uh, drop back as far as possible, yeah. um, the um, the Fritz X had a tail flare, so it had a kind of a bright... It was deliberately engineered to look very bright the engine at the back. From the back. So that they could see it. Spotted. Presumably to get as far back as possible. Yeah, it had a range of five kilometers. Yeah. So they must have used maybe binoculars or some kind of sight to keep it in sight and and guide it along. Yeah, stay there. Again, desperate times, right? And actually, there were actually another version, the Henschel HS-293 radio control glide bomb. Oh, yeah, yeah. And this one, what was doing was to glide... Uh, and the rocket will fire 10 seconds after gliding. After it dropped. Dropped, gliding, and shoo, get to the target. And it was first deployed in 1943, and it sank the British Corvette HMS uh, Egret. Mm-hmm. And this was practically towards the end of the war. Yeah, all too late, right? But of course, like you said, the Allies figured out how to jam the radio frequency, so they were interfering with the yeah. operation of it. Yeah, yeah, it's interesting. I mean, obviously, well, like we said earlier, had any of this occurred just maybe two years before or three uh-huh. years before, it could have changed the course of the war. Completely. Um, and probably just to finish, hmm. we have uh, one a, more. A quick mention. A quick mention, which were called the Goliath Tract Mine. But oh. the Allies were calling it the... Doodlebug. They did call it a doodlebug. I'm very confused about that because they called the V1 the doodlebug as well. So. Yeah. Well, uh, those mines were, again, remote controlled yeah, and were demolition carriers. Yeah. They were like, uh, they looked like a tracked vehicle, but only yeah. like maybe three, a meter long. And imagine that it was like a, like a tank, let's say. Yeah, like a little tank. Like a little tank in scale. Yeah, like a meter long or something. Uh, yeah, like a meter long. From the photograph. Yeah. yeah. And radio control. They could right? transport a 165 pound bomb yeah. to a target and then explode. Yeah. And they were uh, used uh, to take down bridges, buildings, oh. and things like this, where, you know, humans or yeah. soldiers could not reach. The biggest disadvantage was they had to walk behind it. <laughs> <laughs> no, I'm sure they didn't. Well, that cool thing, or let's say the cool thing in a way, quoting, is that it could uh, explode on impact. Mm. And they used actually, uh, well, were produced actually 4,600 of those devices. Wow. 
And there was a larger version that could carry a 220-pound bomb. But then the Germans had to drop it because they were slow, hard to control, right. and the payloads in the end were small compared with compared the, to the damage and the right. effectiveness of, of them. So the idea uh, was, again, so I think very good idea, very but ahead good. of the time, not with enough technology to exactly. deploy properly or yeah. set it correctly. The technology wasn't... It's the remote control technology, isn't it? That's just I not. think that was part of it, yes. Because it was probably amplitude modulated radio, mm. which is incredibly easy to to jam. They didn't have interfere F- with it. They didn't yeah. have FM then. It was all AM technology. Yeah. Um and of course these little Goliath thingies, these little one meter yeah. if anybody's ever watched Robot Wars, the T V program, mm-hmm. you know exactly what this thing was, right? It was yeah. kinda of like that kind of stuff. Something like that. Yeah. So, well, amazing. Yes. So that's our little walk through through what a, what actually got made uh-huh, rather yeah. than fantasy stuff. Yes, or we're not certain. Yeah, of course. It's um, still a mystery, I would say, mm. was real or not. Well, there are certain things around, but, you know. But these things were real. Those were mm, real. That we've yes. discovered. Mm-hmm. Um, and again, had... These things happened a little bit earlier in the war. Who knows? We could be talking. I could be talking to you in German now. This could have been like the man in the high castle. Exactly. An alternate reality. A reality. Mm-hmm. Yeah. Good grief. Yeah. So. Yeah. I think we finished with this topic for this week. Very interesting topic, I think. Yeah. Uh, too bad our guest couldn't make it today. Yes, that is a shame. Uh-huh. Wherever he is. Mm-hmm. Well, we know where he is. He's just not here. Yeah. <laughs> you know who you are. But yeah. next week, we will come back with another topic. Of course. Carl, thank you. See you next week. Rafa, a pleasure. And we talk to you next week down the rabbit hole. All names, sounds, logos, and other related items are owned by their respective trademark and copyright holders. This podcast is a production of Dark Mind Radio. Go to darkmindradio.com to find out more. All rights reserved, Dark Mind Radio 2016.